As a bonus to my regular listeners, I thought that I would include a interview done by Gail Kimball of Ask Dr. Gail, a show on KZFR Radio in Chico, California. So here you go for your listening pleasure. Hopefully it provides you with some additional background on the story, and I hope that you enjoy it. Um, so I couldn't put your book down. It, it, it went way past my bedtime because I couldn't put it down. So you were saying... Yeah, I, I feel like I've been apologizing for the book since I put it out because it's, it, you know, it's pretty graphic and there's a lot of violence in it. Uh, and, um, you know, I feel like it, it, there's a certain genre of reader that it's designed for. It's not for everyone. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm always very flattered when I find somebody who it works for them. Right. You know, the violence wasn't graphic. I mean, it, we didn't get detailed descriptions of gore and wounds and stuff. So there, there was at no point where I felt, you know, eviscerated by the description of the violence or something. But there was a lot of it. Well, let me just introduce you. So we're talking to William Scott Huber. And I want to read from about the author, his book, um, uh, after the virus, a survivalist journal. Scott Huber has packed numerous lifetimes worth of experience into one, having worked as a ranger, wildlife tour guide, environmental educator, hunting guide, real estate agent, solar energy consultant, and advertising account executive. You like to bird, hunt, fish, hike, and sail. You've been in our school board and city council in Chico, served as president of the local Audubon chapter, and have two daughters and a son, and our grandfather and a husband. <laughs> so that's a lot to pack into one life. Um, let, let's start with where and when you were born at the very beginning. Sure. Uh, I was born in 1956 in Culver City, California, which is in West Los Angeles. And uh, Culver City's motto is where Hollywood movies are made. So I had a movie studio at the end of my block and I had another uh, couple of studios within a mile. Uh, it was a fun town to grow up in. For fun in, in childhood, we used to sneak into the movie studios and climb around on the sets. Right, what month were you born? I'm interested in your astrological sign. Sure, October 22nd. So you're a Scorpio. Uh, I'm a Libra on oh. the cusp of Scorpio. Ah, and do you feel like that, like a person who really appreciates harmony and balance and also has intense, sometimes subterranean feelings? <laughs> <laughs> I very much identify with the balance idea. Uh, I, I seek balance in everything I do, whether it's in my personal life or whether it is uh, in my dealings with the city issues. Okay. Um, let's, let's go to the book. Uh, your first book was not this novel. It was a naturalist journal. What was that book about? Sure. Um, if you're familiar with the Sierra Club's planner, you know, every Christmas time, if you're out shopping for calendars for people, uh, Sierra Club puts out this beautiful day planner or week planner where there'll be photos on one side and then 
seven days of the week on the other, and you can sort of map out your life with that little journal. And my mom kept one of those for about 20 years, the last 20 years of her life, wrote in it every day. You can't write much. There's not a lot of room. And so I used that model as the basis for my first publication, which was NorCal Naturalist Journal and Calendar. And it had, I think, 48 photographs taken by either myself or my son, Liam, and then 52, I think 52, short as one-page essays on something that matched the week of the year in nature. In other words, you know, everything that happens in nature is very seasonal with when the flowers bloom to when the migrating birds arrive, when the migrating birds depart, uh, when animals court and mate, and uh, all those sort of things. So the, the stories matched the week of the year that the journal was dealing with. So growing up in Culver City, you didn't have a lot of nature. I grew up also in West LA, and I was lucky because I grew up in the canyons, and we were hiking around in the dirt and the oak trees all the time. So how did you get from being a city boy to being an expert on botany, and, and you majored in geography? Yeah, I I craved nature from the time I was a young child. Always felt like a fish out of water in the city and always longed to move to the country. You know, in high school, I was researching homesteading in Alaska and uh, homesteading in Australia. And those were things that I was just very excited about. It took me 23 years to get out of the city, but There was no looking back once I did. Coming from suburbia, Chico at that time seemed like a a reasonable facsimile for a rural lifestyle. And of course, it kind of was back in 1979, um, much less so now. The one thing that Chico had was easy access to nature right outside the boundaries of the community. So as soon as you got out of town, you were in the wheat fields or the rice fields or the orchards or the foothills or up Deer Creek or up Mill Creek, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, I've always said about Chico, my favorite thing about living here is the access that you have to everything just outside of town. Upper Park is amazing. It's so beautiful oh, yeah. and so many trails and um, it, it's stupendous. I, I, I really appreciate that too. Um, so... Why did you major in geography rather than botany or biology? Yeah, you know, in retrospect, um, I wish that I had buckled down and been a biology major um, because I think that's really where my heart was. But geography just seemed like an easier path to graduation, and I took the easier path rather than the harder path. So I've always been sort of a, a closet biologist in, uh, in a geographer's outfit. An understanding of geography sets you up for an understanding of all those other disciplines. Right. Because geography right. is kind of the overarching understanding of why things are where they are. It's topography. It's, it, it, it can really take in all of those other disciplines. Um, to get back to your novel, what what inspired you? It's different than anything 
that I know that you've done? What what was the impetus to the catalyst? Yeah, I think part of it is is just being surrounded by uh, such obvious history. So over the years of wandering around the foothills, I've encountered many bedrock grinding stones. For acorns. And there are some caves in Upper Park or just above Upper Park that are full of grinding holes. And I really think that that was the impetus to the story for me, was sort of envisioning what life must have been like for the people who survived every day of their life in the outdoors. This is the Machupta and the Maidu. Yes, I you know I don't know where the Machupta sort of delineate the edge of where their homeland was, but it certainly seems like it's Maidu. Those caves and those bedrocks, and seeing that such obvious history of people living out in or you know near the Chico environment inspired me to to write a story about a 21st century middle-aged white man who had survived the Gulf War or the war against terror, coming home and then being faced with this cataclysmic collapse of the world as we knew it based on climate change finally catching up to us. And this is 2034, the book is set in, and there's an Ebola-like pandemic that kills most people except those who are somehow immune to it, correct? That's correct. Yeah, so I mean, um, at its core, this is eco-fiction. This is an environmental disaster that leads to an apocalypse, and that apocalypse comes in the form of a mutated virus, uh, which is, you know, not too unlike what we're seeing a glimpse, getting a glimpse of right now. Although fortunately, um, you know, not nearly as extreme as as the picture I paint in the book. But you know, it was just uh, five or ten years ago that Ebola made it into this country, and boy, I think we really dodged a bullet there because if it had gone the way that our current pandemic is going, can you imagine what would have happened to us? Because well, there's book- no there's no vaccine for Ebola, right? I'm not certain about that. There may be vaccines for certain types of Ebola, but once a once a virus like that mutates, if the if the vaccine you have doesn't work on the mutation, then you're SOL. So that's that's what this book was imagining, was that sort of scenario. What um, is the connection with climate change and the fictional pandemic in your book? So what climate change allows to happen is uh, the warming of the oceans, the raising of, uh, the, of sea level, the fouling of fresh water, the increased temperature allows the expansion of species, especially in this case mosquitoes, that carry viruses to expand their range. And so they move out of their traditional range in the in the tropics or in the equatorial region, and they move into the temperate zone up where we are, and that just wreaks havoc on everything we have established. 
Yeah, and people point out with COVID that as we encroach on wild areas, there's more contact with bats and other kind of animals that are carriers. So it's like our lack of respect for wilderness areas encroachment leads to these kind of problems. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a lot of dystopian novels and films maybe the last decade or more. And your book, I think, fits in with that. Why Do you have any ideas about why so many dystopias rather than utopian fiction? <laughs> um, well, I think people are afraid. I, I think that in the 60s, I probably wasn't very aware, at least in the early 60s, I wasn't very aware <clears throat> of um, environmental degradation, and habitat loss and um, endangered species. By, but certainly by the late 60s and early 70s, for me, it became something that I've been hearing about on a daily basis for the rest of my life. And children that are grown, you know, growing up now, people younger than me have been hearing the warnings and hearing about the degradation from the day they're born. I like to say that, you know, I'm glad I was born when I was because I saw a shade of blue sky that people don't see now. The sky's not as blue as it was when you and I were children. So, you know, I think that there is a cynicism, there's a pessimism about our future. And I would say that I'm neither of those things. I'm not, I'm not cynical. And I'm not pessimistic. I feel like I'm realistic. I'm pragmatic. I think if you look at all the evidence uh, of, of everything that's ever happened with humans and everything that's ever happened with the earth, you come to the conclusion that eventually we're going to reach our carrying capacity on this planet. Turning points, they call them too. Yes. Yeah. And... Once we do, we're going to go through a series of die-offs. And are humans going to choose to fix it? I don't know. It seems to me that when faced with those questions in the past, we've always chosen greed over, over solutions. Yeah, I think that they just turned down banning fracking in California yeah. and the state legislature. They couldn't even get out of committee. Right. Exactly. I just finished a book where I interviewed girl climate activists, girls and young women around the world, and they are really angry at what older generations have wrought. So that they're angry and they say, but we have to be hopeful or we wouldn't do all this work of organizing. So um, they're fueled by their anger, but it doesn't keep them from taking action. But What's interesting to me about this Generation Z is they don't respect older people very much. I mean, they like their elders, but they, they think we really goofed up. <laughs> yeah, who can blame them? <laughs> yeah, really. Trump didn't help that either. <laughs> Boy, well, that's the truth. Do you, do you have hopes that um, Biden's more <clears throat> progressive commitment to dealing with climate change will have any impact? Is he doing enough? 
No, I don't think he's doing enough, but <clears throat> I think he's doing as much as he can make happen. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, you know, on the whole issue of this progression toward mass extinction, I, I think there are things that we can do to slow the process. And I think that, you know, when you talk about these young activists, young biologists, um, and their optimism and their hopefulness, you have to have that because we want to we want to make it last as long as we can. I don't think we can make it last forever. But if we can if we can extend it, if we can give ourselves and the species around us more time, you know, if uh, if we can assure that our grandchildren get to see wild elephants and wild Sumatran rhinoceroses and and pangolins um and if that lasts for a few more generations, well, it's better than it only lasting one more generation. Some people say that engineering, capturing uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere has to happen. We have to have some kind of major engineering ways to capture it. Although we could do it the old-fashioned way and do organic farming and replant forests, rainforests that have been torn down to run cattle. So we have the techniques, we just don't have the will. Do you, do you think that means that we have to rely on some kind of fancy engineering carbon capture? Yeah, I think we have to do something major if we want to try to reverse the trends of, you know, what we naturally do, which is just keep growing our population and, and using up resources. We have to do something. I'm, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, people, people I, I just go back to the book for a minute because I'm, I'm reminded of, I'm reminded by what I'm saying, how sort of grim uh, the book is. And, it, and everybody who has read it, the one, the one unifying comment has been that it's grim. And my response is, well, yeah, most post-apocalyptic stories are grim um, because they deal with, you know, a cataclysmic crisis uh, that you're trying to crawl out of. That's what post-apocalypse is. So it is a grim story, but it's not without hope. Well, the and hope is that they, the survivalists find a tanker that they're hoping to board to take them out to sea to avoid radiation from some nuclear program that I don't understand. Is, is that the hope in the book? The hope is that goodness in the form of our heroes in the book, because they're good people, the hope is that heroes will survive this sort of onslaught of people and militia, but the hope is that they will endure. And, you know, with the population brought down by 95 to 98%, that's a starting point that the earth could handle. <laughs> That's a number of humans that if they were to start over with those kind of numbers and do it right, they could potentially make this all work. I didn't understand the plot from some remnant of the UN to nuclear bomb. I, what was all that about? Yeah, so... A development in the last third of the story is that after being pursued by this 
sort of shadow militia, shadow paramilitary, that we don't really know what their, their goal is other than they want to eliminate anybody who may be able to infect them. So they see uh, these asymptomatic carriers who haven't died from the virus as a threat. So they're trying to kill them off. Well, they decode a message that's uh, broadcast. On the radio. And it, it appears to be from a remnant of the UN broadcasting a plan in code that the country is going to be nuked to sort of provide a blank slate. And so that anybody who picks up the message should get off of the continent to avoid dying either directly from the blasts or from the radiation. So that is what everybody who receives this message and is able to interpret it is trying to do. They're trying to get out to sea as far as they can to avoid this uh, this cleansing. The, the other hopeful thing is someone does find Will's journal. So it implies yeah, there's survivors. I, and I think, um, you know, part of writing a journal is even if it's a private diary, uh, I, I think in the back of your mind, you hope someday somebody's going to read it. Or not. <laughs> in, in, in the case of a diary, I mean, maybe it's, you hope they don't read it until after you're gone. <laughs> but I mean, most people journal because, uh, well, I think, I do. I think of it as a legacy, mm. that things that I've written that I hope people understand about my life and my time here after I'm gone. Mm. Um, I wonder, your character's name, Will, you're official first name is William. I wonder how you felt when he has to kill his wife, his daughter, and his son because they get infected. I mean, did that, how did it feel to, to write that? Because you must identify with Will. Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, Will is sort of my alter ego. He's a lot of things that I, that I am not, but I think in parts he thinks a lot like me. So uh, probably the most controversial part of the book for most people is the first chapter where I call them mercy killings. He knows that his family is dying of this disease and they're going to die painfully. And so he helps speed that along. A lot of people, I think, just put down the book after they read that part. But what did I feel when I was writing that? Uh, I felt that if I was incredibly brave and um, incredibly intent on surviving, that it would require making those sort of decisions. Uh, because I think it was a, I think it was both a brave and a charitable move by yeah, Will. Yeah, I, I do too. I I felt like I I understood that he had to do it. Um, yeah. So. That's where that comes from. Yeah. Um, you could look at I, the book. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be brave enough to do that myself. You never know. I mean, if you saw blood coming out of their eyes and knowing they were suffering, maybe you would. Yeah. I hope I would be able to. Ugh, we don't have to think about that. Um, you, <laughs> could, you could say that this is a feminist novel because Will partners up with a teenage girl named Hope. She ends up saving him. When they band together with other survivalists, women are strong leaders 
in that survivalist group as they go down the Sac River. Did you think of it consciously as a kind of a feminist statement? I didn't really, no. Uh, the few things that I did think of, well, I called on my own uh, belief, which is uh, my wife finds it funny that I choose uh, every professional that I choose in my life is female. So doctor, dentist, dermatologist, counselor, whatever, I choose women. And I think that says a number of things. Uh, but one is that I, I just have a lot of respect for women and their way of doing things and handling things. I think it would be great if we had a woman president, which I think we're right on the cusp of having. Named Miss Harris. Yeah. And um, so I think that that worked its way, that insinuated its way into the novel. There's also been, in the last decade or two, there have been a series of um, young female heroines from Hunger Games to Divergent to, uh, you know, I can think of two or three others. And I think this just sort of fit with that pattern. So, yeah, it just made sense to me. It made sense that this old kind of curmudgeon guy uh, ends up being saved by this uh, 16-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. And, and as you also referred to later on in the book, both Keisha, who is this really dominant black woman. And at the very end, Sheila, who's a woman in her 70s, both take over leadership roles and lead their respective portions of the story. Right. And Will is really relegated to, to sort of a, you know, a second, a secondhand player, although he is the thread. He and Hope are the thread that run Hope, the character named Hope, right. Uh, right. the threads that run throughout and, and take us right to the end. And then uh, unknown as to whether or not they will be in the sequel. Oh, there's going to be a sequel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, <laughs> if you listen to the podcast, I sent you a link to the podcast. Next week, I'm going to do chapter one and chapter two of the sequel and then I'm going to take a hiatus and um, just work on the story, work on the sequel some more. If people want to listen to that podcast, where should they go? Well, anywhere you get pod, it's on every podcast platform. Uh, I tend to like Amazon the best because they get my my broadcast up like as soon as I publish it. It's available on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon Podcasts. And you go to After the Virus, a survivalist journal. You'll find it there. And it's not survivalist. It's survivalist. Right. Um, If you had to, could you feed your family living in the areas where Will and Hope go around Lake Almanor, Upper Park? Could, Could you make it? Yes. Yeah, we have enough. Well, if I was strictly a a vegan or a vegetarian, uh, it would be tough. Um, But as as an omnivore (laughs) um, and as a hunter, 
uh, I could certainly, uh, there's, there's ample megafauna around here. So your characters eat squirrel, deer, trout, other fish, cattails. Um, well, and the, the, the Maidu, their staple was salmon and acorn meal. But in, mm -hmm. in, in the book, I don't think you, you used acorn meal. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, that is sort of an oversight, and I don't know why I didn't. Uh, well, I, I guess I do know, because they were never in the uh, oak zone during the fall when the acorn harvest would be. And it takes were, a lot of time to leach the tannic acid out of it. You'd have to be in one place for a while, and they tended to keep moving. Yeah, exactly. So they were only at... Uh, the zone where either blue oaks or valley oaks or black oaks or scrub oaks or interior live oaks or canyon live oaks would be until about September. And normally the acorn drop is in late September or October. So if they were above the zone of the oaks starting in September, they never would have been somewhere where they would have access to fresh acorns. Yeah, that makes sense. It, I think it's interesting that you said that in the book they learned independence and dependence. So they were independent from civilization in some most ways, but very dependent on snaring the rabbit or whatever it was. So that, that seems to be a, a major kind of theme in the book. Yeah, I mean, so true. Uh, even even if we consider ourselves to be fiercely independent, there are still things that we are absolutely dependent on that we can't get away from being dependent on. And, and the point that I make at the end of that sort of statement is that the most important dependence that he forms is with this teenage girl because of the sort of em emotional and spiritual support that he gleans from that relationship. Well, and he needs her when his hand gets severed and when he's <laughs> sick and whatever, and when he's being yeah. attacked, she, she rescues him a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, She's a badass. And that about sums it up. Hope is a badass. I admire Hope, and um, she is definitely my hero in the story. I hope that you've enjoyed this interview and uh, tune in next week for the preview of chapters one and two of the sequel, Survivalist's Birthright. <laughs>